Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast, a special edition of the New Books and Political Science podcast, where uh, I, Heath Brown, will be uh, co-interviewing Meredith Conroy, uh, along with Lily Gorin, about uh, Meredith's new book, Masculinity, Media, and the American Presidency, published uh, last year by Palgrave Macmillan. It's such a pleasure to have you both on. I'd like each one of you the chance to introduce yourself. Meredith, as the as the author today, maybe you can take the first shot at, at just telling us just a little bit about Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast, a special edition of the New Books and Political Science podcast, where uh, I, Heath Brown, will be uh, co-interviewing Meredith Conroy, uh, along with Lily Gorin, about uh, Meredith's new book, Masculinity, Media, and the American Presidency, published uh, last year by Palgrave Macmillan. It's such a pleasure to have you both on. I'd like each one of you the chance to introduce yourself. Meredith, as the as the author today, maybe you can take the first shot at, at just telling us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, my name is Meredith Conroy. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at California State University, San Bernardino. Um, I finished my PhD in 2010 um, at University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, I did my undergrad in Whittier at Whittier College in Los Angeles, but I'm from Idaho. So um, I uh, moved to California at 18 and have been lucky enough to get to stay here. So there's a little bit about me. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. And, and Lily, uh, we know we know just a little about you from the last time you were on uh, co-interviewing uh, as a part of the podcast, but just as a refresher. Uh, and if maybe if any of your titles have changed since then, um, uh, why don't you t- remind us who you are? Okay, I'm professor of political science and global studies at Carroll University, which is situated in beautiful Waukesha, Wisconsin. Um, and I live in Milwaukee with my family. Um, and I think since we last spoke, I've also become the director of the honors program here. So, yeah, wonderful. There you go. Well, congratulations okay. on that. I guess that means that you'll be busy this summer getting ready for a new class of honors students. Uh, Meredith, let's let's get to your really interesting and and I you know and, and this is the sort of the season of yes. appropriate books, but I can think of no more appropriate book uh, to 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 talk about uh, right now than than your book. Um, before we get to some of the, the the meat and potatoes of the book, let's just talk about some terms. And I wonder if you'd uh, some, do some definitions for us, just so that we're all on the same page. So, um, I wonder if you'd explain the difference between sex and gender, and then also between being a male and masculinity, and being a woman and femininity. Uh, would, you, would you get us to sort of the, the working definitions that you, you use uh, in this book? Yeah. So... Most of the political science scholarship on gender is really looking at differences between men and women, so sex, um, biological, uh, the biological distinction um, between men and women. And what I was trying to do was move the literature forward by taking into consideration gender of men and women. So as you um, described, femininity and masculinity. So where it's true that femininity is um, the words associated with femininity have to do with the stereotypical um, definitions or traits used to describe women. Femininity is not unique to women. You can, of course, have feminine men and feminine women. And similarly with masculinity, the traits derived 
um, or to determine the meaning of masculinity do come from our stereotypical notions of what it means to be a man. But you can, of course, have a masculine woman and a masculine man. So what I was trying to do was to suggest that uh, we not just look at the differences between men and women in politics, um, but look at the differences between uh, masculine women and masculine men, uh, feminine women, feminine men, um, uh, to see if there are nuances in our findings about the differences between men and women. And if the, that could shine light on other barriers to women and some men in politics. Great. Lily, what do you think? I, I think that this book is amazing for the way that it really does wrestle with these descriptors and our understanding of ways that we think about individuals in the public sphere um, and highlight things that many people aren't even conscious of with regard to associating terminologies that are are sort of um, coded to masculinity and terminologies that are coded to femininity and how those are applied specifically to male candidates for executive office. And Meredith, I really, I learned a lot from your book and I really had a great time reading it. So thank you. Thank you. And I just, I wanted to ask you, I guess, also to start off now that he's asked you about some of these terms that are important to understand the distinctions between, if you could just sort of go over the broad sort of thematic um, understanding of what you're trying to get at, um, because I think it's it's a little bit nuanced, it's more than a little bit nuanced, but I think it's important and allows you to sort of explain your avenue into this, this whole area of um, research. Yeah, so I came to the presidency, you know, I'm not necessarily a presidency scholar. I came to this through the literature on gender and politics and um, was interested in this literature on the general just underrepresentation of women in politics and how, you know, our instead of governing institutions, elected, um, elected bodies are uh, dominated by men. And um, previously I had done some work on, you know, media and the way it talks about women and the effects on women who run for office in their candidacies. And uh, in looking at the presidency, which is the least numerically representative in terms of sex, I wondered maybe it has a little bit to do not only just about how we talk about women in media, but perhaps how we talk about men in media. Could that also contribute to the uh, stronghold that men have on the executive office? And could that also trickle down to these other offices? So um, that's how I came to this uh, the presidency literature, because it, like I said, it's the only one where there has not yet been a female. And I wondered, could it be how we talk about men? And so um, I think I lost the train of your question. Uh, can you remind so what, what's, me? You know, what's the, the broad thesis of your book? Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, that is how I came to the presidency um, through the gender and politics literature. Uh, and so my thesis before I began was that I expected media coverage of male candidates to contribute to the notion that femininity is inappropriate in politics and that masculinity is more appropriate. And I'll just say a little bit about where the idea came from. 
I was an intern um, as an undergraduate. I had a I studied abroad and was able to just do an internship with the Associated Press television news station in London. And it was during the 2004 election. And I remember watching, you know, coming in and just watching the footage. It was the Associated Press television network. So it was a little bit different than the typical Associated Press. And I would watch the B-roll that that the um, our production people would send to the office. And I just was so surprised and interested in the images over and over again of the two candidates at the time, John Kerry and George W. Bush, doing all these masculine posturing and other uh, you know, photo ops where they were trying to be the most manly and masculine. And it was clear that George W. Bush was much better at it. John Kerry you know, filming do, or uh, photos taken of him doing his manly masculine sports activities weren't to the standard of Americans. You know, his um, the skiing in the Alps, making him look elitist or the windsurfing, perfectly embodying the flip flop label that he was given. Um, and so it was at that time as an undergraduate, actually, that I was like, what is going on here? Why are they fighting for to be the most masculine? And what happens to the candidate who loses out? So when I was in graduate school, um, I have uh, taken a political communication course with Rosalie Clausen at Purdue. Um, I thought I want to I want to look at the coverage of men, in particular the presidency, to see if media is either perpetuating or reinforcing. It's, I can't necessarily determine, you know, chicken or the egg. Um, the uh, reverence we pay to masculinity in politics and what happens to the candidate who isn't able to um, meet that standard. So the that was the approach, and the expectation was that. Because media norms are reliant on conflict, I expected that within the context of individual articles or over the course of the election, that one candidate would win in terms of masculinity and the other candidate would be framed as more feminine to their detriment. Now, all of these ideas, I think, are so interesting conceptually, but I imagine a lot of people would say, how in the world can you measure this? These These seem like such ambiguous concepts you know how you you other than other than noting that john Kerry uh got on his windsurfing uh windsurfed and and that was portrayed in a certain way how do you actually get to this your your method that you use is so very interesting and the way in which you categorize the use of words and then map those onto the media coverage i think is such a novel and interesting approach to this would you tell us a little bit about how mechanically you approach these ideas Yes. Yeah, so the I the concepts I was interested in were masculinity, femininity, and then gender neutral, gender neutrality. And what I did is I relied on the um, psychology literature on gender identity, where in psychology they give people um, tests and ask them to respond to a number of questions to determine your individual gender identity. So someone can be highly masculine and highly feminine or have low levels of masculine identity and low femininity. So femininity and masculinity are um, distinct scales within psychology. So what I did is I took the traits from those um, uh, tests from psychology and made a, and just made what I call the gender code book where I had masculine traits, feminine traits, and then traits that were deemed gender neutral. Of course, those didn't cover all of the adjectives used to describe candidates in presidential elections, but I tried to um, draw from that basis 
uh, for words that are more likely to be used in politics, um, like, you know, deliberative, compromising, um, uh, tough, strong, just those words that they may not have been explicitly in the psychology literature for gender identity, but I was able to reasonably, you know, uh, place those words um, or categorize those words as feminine or masculine. So with that code book in hand, I uh, read newspaper articles. I only looked at the USA, uh, USA Today and the New York Times, but I just coded, I read a random sample of articles for two, from the 2000 presidential election to the 2012 election. And just anytime I saw an adjective used to describe a candidate I highlighted it and noted it as masculine, feminine, or neutral. And then from that, within the individual article, a candidate came to a gendered score. So if in, if in one article they called George W. Bush stalwart, independent, and strong, his gender score for that article would be a one. So each masculine trait would get a one. And then if in that same article they called John Kerry um, intelligent, weak and funny, uh, his score would be, uh, I should have done something that wouldn't require so much math. (laughs) (laughs) In that one, he has two neutral traits and one feminine trait. So his score would be a a negative 0.25. And which are the neutral and which are the the feminine, just for clarity? So intelligent, I coded intelligent as neutral. Um, there are, there is some, this is something I address in the book. There are some political science scholarship that finds political science scholarship that finds individuals to associate intelligence and um, or with men and honesty with women. The psychology literature didn't give me a reason to uh, make, draw those conclusions. So I actually coded like honesty as neutral and intelligence as neutral. Um, uh, there's probably reason to go back and do the analysis considering both, given that those two traits were used a lot, like they make up um, some of the most common traits used to describe presidents. But for my analysis, intelligence and funny would be neutral and whatever the other trait is, a weak. Weak would be feminine. So his score would be a negative 0.25 in that. And then within that article, then I would look at the difference in the two gendered scores. So where George W. Bush was a one, John Kerry is a negative 0.25. Um, is that statistically significant? And I would do that for hundreds of articles. Go, L- Lily, go ahead. Sure. I I had another question that, you know, I was really, really curious with regard to your analysis of the individual elections. And, and I was looking specifically, I wanted to see how you had sort of assessed particularly 2008 with McCain and Obama. Um, and, and you, you know, you did sort of go through and explain that um, youth and age are generally not um, feminized or masculinized, but they may be a little bit. Um, and, and I also was wondering about, you know, if you can sort of talk a little bit more about some of these co- concepts that we are associating with the individual because that's just who they are. They're old or they're young um, and or they're black or they're white. Um, And and that a lot of these are neutral terms, but in a political context, they may sort of elicit some genderizing. Can you address that a little bit? 
Yeah. So with respect to the age question, um, in, yeah, in 2008, obviously, well, John McCain is all very old and Barack Obama was really young. And so what I found to be the most common descriptors of those two candidates were, as you point out, just what they were not, you know, they weren't, there was no, um, nuance by journalists. Well, there was some, which I'll get to, but by saying Barack Obama's black, like that's not the opinion necessarily of the journalist. That's just what he is. And by talking about McCain's age, that is also just what he is. And Obama's age, that is just what he is. But as you noted, there was, there were oftentimes when, uh, the journalist did add some more judgment to the age description uh, when like when they described John McCain as um, trying to remember some of the the loaded like cranky. Oh, yeah. Like it's the things that you would use to describe yeah, prickly, cranky, crotchety, um, uh, grouchy, shaky. These were used, as I said in the text, I think they were a clever or not disguise for uh, talking about his age. So what I had to do in the analysis, or I had to make a judgment to say, is old and are you old and young gendered? And I decided that when they seem to just be just mentioning the candidate's age, that I would put them in the neutral category. But when they were more loaded, uh, I added them to the gendered category. So when President Obama, for example, would be described as, um, you know, physically active or um, having being physically fit, I put because of his youth, I would code those as masculine. And then when they just mentioned him as being young, um, I would put that as neutral or when they put them as childlike, that actually was a concept in the psychology literature as feminine. So that would make him feminine. So with age, it wasn't as straightforward. I wish it would have been would have made coding much easier. But I tried to um, cap uh, capture or um, understand the intention of the journalist when using those terms. You can kind of tell when you're reading, you know, are they using this to uh, as a means of negative tone or positive tone? So that was another category I coded for. I coded for the tone of the traits as well. And you could usually tell from the tone whether or not they were um, trying what they were trying to elicit with the use of those terms. So I get I kind of tried to answer both your questions there with the respect to age as being gendered and what to do with just the individual. And I think about with Hillary, you know, how, if I were to do this analysis for right now, they're going to talk about her being a woman all the time. And so that's going to make her seem as though her coverage is highly feminine, but I don't know if that would accurately capture the purpose of the journalist and, and whether or not they were trying to talk about her in feminine terms. But with the coding I have now, it would. So with Barack Obama being black, which was, he was described as black a lot. It was the most common trait used to describe him in 2008 in particular. Um, black was just neutral, so it didn't necessarily throw off my um, uh, categories of masculine versus feminine, given that he was described as black by in every article. So with Hillary, I would have to maybe run the analysis, the gender coding analysis twice, just 
just to see what happens when I don't consider when they just mention that she is, you know, the first female nominee, if that ends up being the case. Can I No, I no, Lily, go ahead. I just wanted to ask a, a little bit of a follow up that I'm curious about um, more than something that you discussed in the book. But I would I would just love to hear your opinion about it in context. That also goes to the way that you were just talking about how Hillary Clinton's going to be described as a woman because she is one. And so it's <laughs> biology as opposed to necessarily femininity. Um, but I guess I was coming back to this sort of descriptor of, of Barack Obama, who is black. Um, but in, in, you know, sort of in our understanding in the United States, being a black man is something that is often considered at least subconsciously, as sort of hyper-masculine. Yeah, that's a great point, and one that I came to think more in depth about after I had finished the book, just this intersection of, you know, I'm looking at gender, but it happens that two half of uh, the election years I look at do have a black man in the election, and you're right that in the United States, Black is associated with hyper black men are considered hyper masculine. And I somewhat comment on that, given that his coverage wasn't overwhelmingly masculine and yet he won his election. Right. I made the point that it could potentially it's possible, although his, this is his true demeanor being, you know, more um, docile and calm. But it's possible that he got away with that, with that more effeminate, feminine uh, characteristics because he was associated with hypermasculinity. So there may have been some implicit association of masculinity due to his race that he benefited from and as someone who is more calm and doesn't fit our stereotypical notions of masculinity. So if I were to go back and do the analysis and code black as masculine, then he would have, I'm certain of it, his gender score for the 2008 election for sure would have been more masculine than John McCain. Um, so unfortunately, I didn't consider the intersection of race and gender and how black masculinity is distinct from white masculinity. I only did so, you know, at, towards the end to try and uh, explain away the fact that um President Obama won the race, even though he was the more feminine candidate, since part of my underlying theory is that the more masculine candidate wins. And yeah. President Obama's race against John McCain was the exception to that. And so I mention it there. But, yes, yeah, an excellent question and something you know I, I failed to incorporate into the this analysis. Now, along that very point, one of the interesting findings that you have is that this sort of relationship, though, the one that you expected between um, framing someone as highly masculine and electoral victories. Um, in 2008, you have this exception. But in 2012, um, the situation sort of flips and the, the race then has Barack Obama as the more masculine of the two candidates. And and he and he wins again, and which fits with your hypothesis. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this, uh, about how Barack Obama uh, fares in your analysis. Does is it is it he, he is he more framed more and more masculine as his presidency goes? Or is it the case that Mitt Romney simply 
was was less framed as less masculine in 2012 than John McCain. What's, what's going on in those two elections? That's a good question. Um, I with the 2008 race, uh, John McCain. The reason Barack Obama lost out had more to do with John McCain's masculinity, the description of him as a war hero time and time again, uh, and as a maverick, which I coded as masculine. So it had less to do with the shift in the coverage of President Obama from 2012 to 2000, uh, from 2008 to 2012, and more to do with the Republican nominee. So in 2008, the you know John McCain was just more masculine than Barack Obama in the descriptors. In 2012, Obama's score didn't change too much, and the words used to describe him also didn't change too much. They were more neutral, and as I I entitled that subchapter, uh, that subcategory, and uh, excuse me, um, whatever the a sub subchapter. Okay, the, you should edit that part out. <laughs> that, that part, that part of the section, that part of the chapter. <laughs> I call it bored versus boring. So <laughs> President Obama was described as bored, if you'll remember, in 2012, low energy. Um, and then you had someone like Mitt Romney, who is described as robotic and just boring. So that election was just the words used to describe the candidates were overwhelmingly neutral. And Obama's were just slightly more masculine than Mitt Romney. So it wasn't necessarily that Mitt Romney was framed as feminine and Obama was framed as masculine. It was that they were more so neutral for the both of them. And Obama was slightly more masculine than uh, Mitt Romney. Barely, just barely. So Obama's characterization didn't change too much from 2008 to 2012, except that there was less energy and excitement um, used to describe him and to describe his demeanor because his demeanor had shifted and more to do with the Republican nominee. Lily, you have our final question. Okay. Um, and this goes to more broadly, you know, the sort of discussion of the way that the media describes things. And that's a large part of your book that we haven't talked about, but I think it's really um, fascinating and, and, and important to understand. But I, I wanted to sort of have you perhaps talk about a little bit whether or not if a candidate is described as more feminine or in more feminine terms, is actually more problematic or detrimental than not having a higher masculine score or having a sort of more neutral score. Um, and I think you get at that a little bit with the, the tension that McCain experienced in terms of being described in both ways. Yeah, and that's something that after, again, you know, I come to these realizations when you're in the thick of it when you're reading and you have a theory and an idea you're kind of um, singularly focused on that but when I step back from the analysis I realize that maybe the, you know the book I call masculinity media and American politics it's appropriate I'm interested in masculinity but you're exactly right it actually seems that what is most consequential is not necessarily if you're portrayed as more or less masculine what I found to be the most, what I do find now, look, I mean, looking back at the analysis shows this also, I just didn't necessarily emphasize it enough in the, in the book, but the most, what is most consequential is if you're framed as feminine. So that seems to be the uh, most important factor 
in the variables I looked at in predicting whether or not you'll lose. It's not necessarily you're going to win if you're more masculine. It's that you're going to lose if you're framed as feminine, as a man. Uh, and so I think you're exactly right in saying, well, yeah, we're interested in gender and the, and the effects of media portrayals of masculinity. But what about these media portrayals of femininity? And I do think that they're more consequential. I think I grapple with that uh, in looking at Al Gore because he lost um, the, I can't remember what it was exactly, but the the feminine traits and concepts as are more negative or have a bigger impact on election outcomes than the positivity of masculine traits. And uh, I wish I had, I'm, um, a little more statistical uh, understanding so I could find a way to parse that out. I'm going to ICPSR, so maybe I'll pick up some skills <laughs> and I'll come back to this data and try and uh, see if I can, you know, ex- extrapolate and separate the two and look at their independent effect on uh, election outcome as opposed to what I do now, which is combine them to create a gendered score. I think it would be really interesting to parse out the different effects of femininity and masculinity, which I don't do yet. But I, I, I think you you dance towards it in the book. I, I think you're sort of you're working your way there in your assessment of the outcome. Yeah. And it's not as if we don't have an election that isn't ripe for analysis. Uh, I imagine everyone listening is so eager for all of your uh, writing over this election, all of your writing in print and and blogging and so forth. Until we get to read all of that, we have we have your book, which is which is out and available. Masculinity, media and the American presidency uh, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2005. uh, Sorry, 2015. Meredith Conroy, thank you very much. Thank you. This was great. Yeah, Lily Gorin, thank you again for helping me out with this, uh, this uh, choosing this book and also uh, with this interview. So thank you. My pleasure. I'm always happy to be your wing person, Keith. <laughs> <laughs>